Welcome to Airway Breathing Conversation, a podcast presented by the anesthesiology residents at the University of Saskatchewan, created to provide individuals of all levels of medical knowledge with anesthesiology-related healthcare information. This episode is part of our abridged Grand Round series, in which highly knowledgeable and sought-after guest speakers present on a multitude of fascinating topics relevant to anesthesia. In this episode... Dr. Sarah Larmer, one of our own third-year anesthesiology residents, will be giving a very informative talk on monitoring and antagonism of neuromuscular blockade in the operating room. Now, whether you are an anesthesiologist, resident, medical student, or member of the general public, come listen in as we demystify the incredible specialty that is anesthesiology one episode at a time. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's seven o'clock, so I think uh, we will get um, started. I'm Sarah Larmer, I'm one of the R3 anesthesia residents, um, and my talk today is on monitoring and antagonism of neuromuscular blockade. So my goals for today are to discuss quantitative neuromuscular monitoring, um, really the need for it, a lot of the evidence behind it, uh, technical evolution in this field in regards to the many different monitors that are available. And then perhaps most importantly, I just really want to compare our practice here in uh, Saskatoon relative to the recent ASA guidelines. So these are the ASA guidelines regarding monitoring antagonism of neuromuscular blockade. They're published in Anesthesiology in January of this year. We'll go through their recommendations, take a bit of a deeper dive into the evidence behind their recommendations, and then look at how other centers have started implementing quantitative neuromuscular monitoring within their institutions. Uh, for those who are maybe newer to um, the residency program and may have not practiced in a place where quantitative neuromuscular monitoring is standard of care, like myself, I'll start with a few quick slides, just briefly discussing the role of uh, paralytics in the OR, reversal of paralytics, and review the basic classes of neuromuscular monitors um, that are available. So of course we all know um, that our neuromuscular blockers are paralytics and we routinely use them in the OR to facilitate our airway management, to improve our surgical conditions, such as in laparoscopic surgeries. And then as is in this list, last picture, um, in our robotics cases, more and more to prevent any patient movement once um, our Da Vinci robots docked. So this image shows the structure of the neuromuscular junction. The neuromuscular junction converts the electrical signal of the motor nerve into a chemical signal by releasing multiple vesicles of acetylcholine, so these are our little green circles there, into the synaptic cleft. The muscle surface contains acetylcholine receptors. These are the little black dots. And if we zoom in, we see that acetylcholine binds to both alpha subunits um, of the receptor, inducing a conformational change that opens a central ion channel, allowing sodium influx and potassium efflux. The muscle cell membrane is depolarized and voltage-gated sodium channels then on that muscle membrane propagate that action potential, resulting in muscle contraction. Acetylcholine remaining in that cleft undergoes rapid hydrolysis by acetylcholinesterase, the uh, enzyme, those blue dots, uh, limiting its effect. 
So we have two classes of paralytics, uh, depolarizing and non-depolarizing, and they're named for how they work at the neuromuscular junction. Succinylcholine, our only depolarizing paralytic, looks like two acetylcholine molecules joined together and actually binds to the alpha subunits, leading to conformational change, opening of that ion channel, and depolarization of the membrane. However, because it's not degraded by acetylcholinesterase, it, um, it depolarizes the membrane for a prolonged time, leading to membrane hyperpolarization, desensitization, resulting in paralysis after our initial receptor activation. Non-depolarizing paralytics, the most uh, common that we probably use are rocuronium and cisatricurium, are competitive a, a um, competitive antagonist to acetylcholine. They bind the acetylcholine receptor, preventing acetylcholine from binding. There's no conformational change, however, and the ion channel, channel remains closed, preventing depolarization. These agents, uh, again, are not metabolized by acetylcholinesterase or by acetylcholinesterase as it sucks, but instead natural reversal depends on redistribution, metabolism, excretion. Clinical duration for um, these agents varies among the different agents, but for rocuronium, which has kind of an intermediate duration of action lasting about 30 to seven minutes following a typical intubating uh, bolus dose. So as we often redose these agents in the intraoperative period, residual neuromuscular blockade is a real possibility. Muscle weakness from partial or residual paralysis on awakening the patient can lead to what a few anesthesiologists here have referred to as the floppy fish. And that's just your patient that looks weak, possibly not protecting their airways, maybe some signs of upper airway obstruction. And you know they're the ones that are at increased risk of hypoxia, atelectasis, pneumonias, probably longer stays in PACU, and just decreased patient satisfaction due to that feeling of weakness when they. Uh, wake up. So to help avoid this, most people feel that any patient receiving non-depolarizing paralytic should be reversed. We essentially have two reversal agents um, for non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockade, neostigmine and sugamidex. Sugamidex will only reverse aminosteroids, not the benzoquinolinums. And then there's also this calibadian, which we see can reverse all uh, neuromuscular blockers, um, both non-depolarizing and depolarizing, um, but is not uh, clinically available. However, something that we may see in the future with reported affinity for rocuronium, 89 times that of stigamidex. So here we have rocuronium competing with acetylcholine to bind the acetylcholine receptor. And we also see acetylcholinesterase decreasing the concentration of acetylcholine in the synaptic cleft. Neostigmine is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. By inhibiting acetylcholinesterase activity, we see an increased concentration of acetylcholine in the synaptic cleft to compete with rocuronium and reverse our neuromuscular blockade. In the next picture, we see sugamidex, our cyclodextrin molecule, which forms that one-to-one -one complex with the rocuronium, eliminating its ability to work at the neuromuscular junction. Okay, so we intentionally paralyze our patients. We wanna reverse that paralysis before we wake them up so we don't get the floppy fish. And we have agents to help us achieve this more quickly. But how do we know um, at any point in time how paralyzed our patient is? And can we measure when it's safe to extubate and wake them up? And this is neuromuscular monitoring. So in 1970, the train of four was introduced. It involves the delivery of four brief electrical impulses to a peripheral nerve and assesses the resulting uh, twitch amplitude. In an unparalyzed patient, um, 
all four twitches would be of equal height. And then under increasing levels of non-depolarizing paralysis, sequential twitches in the training will decrease in amplitude, which is described as fade and due to muscle fatigability. The chain of four ratio is the amplitude of the fourth twitch divided by the amplitude of the first twitch. In an unparalyzed patient, the chain of four ratio will equal one. With increasing paralysis, the chain of four ratio decreases until the disappearance of the fourth twitch. And at that point, we can only describe the chain of four count as three of four twitches, two of four twitches, et cetera. In 1979, a study found that uh, 40, there was a 42% incidence of train of four ratios less than 0.7 on arrival in PACU. And this is when neuromuscular monitoring really started gaining some followers. And then over the subsequent years, the definition of residual neuromuscular blockade has moved from that original value of less than 0.7 to the current most widely accepted value of less than 0.9. So here on the left, we have an awake patient. At the orange arrow, we can say maybe a dose of rocuronium is given. We see fade as well as a decrease of amplitude until we have a train of four count of zero. As the block starts to wear off, we then see first a post-tetanic count, and then gradually the return of our first train of four count, then second, third, and finally fourth, at which point we can start to measure that train of four ratio. So now that we've kind of recapped uh, the basics, knowledge that we need to talk about neuromuscular monitoring, I'm gonna take a bird's eye view and just see what the ASA guidelines recommend as a standard of care in regards to all of this. So recommendation one, when neuromuscular blocking drugs are administered, we recommend against clinical assessment alone to avoid residual neuromuscular blockade. So I put a check mark here because from my observation in most, almost all cases, we use at least a peripheral nerve stimulator to get a qualitative assessment of neuromuscular blockade. Recommendation two and three, we recommend quantitative over qualitative monitoring and confirming a train of four ratio greater than 0.9 before extubation. Given that we only have two quantitative monitors in the city, this is definitely not the standard uh, in Saskatoon yet. Item number four and five, we recommend monitoring of the ductor pollicis muscle and avoiding use of eye muscles. And I would say that in most cases, um, when we use our um, qualitative monitor, it's at the corrugator supercilli. And then number six, we recommend Sugamidex over neostigmine at deep, moderate, and shallow depths of anesthesia. And while I commonly see it used in, at deep and moderate blockade, I, I rarely see it uh, used for shallow blocks. Um, and a shallow block is defined as four twitches with some detectable fate. So I realize this may be a little bit dramatic with all these big red X's up here, um, but really what I'm just hoping to highlight is that our practice right now differs greatly from the proposed practice guidelines uh, put out by the ASA and just caught my eye as an area where we might potentially have some room for improvement and that it would be a good topic to uh, discuss today. Also with the um, con publication of congruent practice guidelines in this area in just February of this uh, year in the European Journal of Anesthesia, I think that this topic is something that's here to stay, uh, something we'll need to figure out how and to what extent we implement. So when I started thinking and asking staff and residents, you know, why we weren't using qu uh, quantitative monitoring, I started coming up with this long list of questions. Does quantitative neuromuscular monitoring actually reduce postoperative pulmonary complications? Can I trust that my quantitative results are valid? And is the need for quantitative monitoring decreasing with the increasing availability of Sugamidex? And then I also heard a lot of barriers to adopting quantitative neuromuscular monitoring. 
It's unavailable. It's unfeasible due to surgical positioning. It's expensive. It's cumbersome. And so I plan to utilize these questions as well as those ASA recommendations to help kind of guide us through the rest of the talk. So recommendation one, avoid clinical assessment alone. So this isn't saying that we shouldn't examine our patients. We should look for all of these clinical signs of strength um, that we've been taught to look for. But multiple RCTs have found that these clinical signs are just not sensitive, meaning that if we don't see good tidal volume, swallowing, et cetera, we know our patient is not ready to be extubated. But if our patient is breathing, swallowing, lifting their head, we can't rule out residual neuromuscular blockade. And we probably have all had the experience of uh, extubating patients and seeing that uh, floppy fish. So I think we recognize this first uh, recommendation. So I'm gonna move on to the next uh, recommendation. So recommendation two, use quantitative over qualitative monitoring to avoid residual neuromuscular blockade. So all of us are familiar with this image of the peripheral nerve stimulator. It applies electrical current with user interpretation of muscle contraction. It's very small, it's portable, and the main monitor that we obviously use here in Saskatoon. It does have a few different modes, but most common for assessing neuromuscular blockade reversal would be the chain of four. And as physicians, we're quite reliable at being able to correctly state the train of four count. But we also know that a train of four count of uh, four is present with up to 75 to 80% re receptor occupancy. Thus, being able to determine fade or the relative height of the fourth to first switch is what really is important. And as we can see here, we're really very poor at this. Studies reporting 16 to 40% correct identification at any ratio above uh, 0.4. We're a little bit more reliable at correctly identifying double burst suppression, uh, but still not perfect. So this is a league table um, from the guidelines reporting the risk ratio and 95% confidence interval for residual neuromuscular blockade, which is defined again as that train of four ratio less than 0.9 in PACU. And they looked at quantitative versus qualitative versus clinical monitoring. So in the guidelines, quantitative monitoring was compared to qualitative monitoring in two RCTs with about 300 patients and to clinical assessment in three RCTs with about 200 patients. So what do these numbers mean? Essentially, if you use qualitative monitoring over clinical monitoring, you're about 62% less likely to measure any residual neuromuscular blockade when you get to PACU. And if you used quantitative monitoring over qualitative monitoring, you'd be 76% less likely to measure residual neuromuscular blockade in PACU. And if you compared quantitative monitoring to clinical monitoring, you'd be 82% less likely to pick up any residual neuromuscular blockade in PACU. So I think this makes sense. Essentially, if tomorrow we switch to quantitative monitoring and documenting a train of four ratio of greater than point or equal to 0.9 prior to extubation, we'd expect that we'd pick up a lot less residual neuromuscular blockade in PACU. But my question is really, is this clinically relevant? If with qualitative assessment, we can confirm a train of four count of four prior to extubation, regardless of whether we see any fade or not, is confirming that there's at least you know, less than or equal to 80% receptor occupancy enough? or do we see worse clinical outcomes, hypoxia, pneumonias, reintubations, than if we were to confirm that train of four ratio of uh, greater than or equal to 0.9. So let's look at the studies that review, were reviewed in the guideline. The popular study was a multi-center prospective observational cohort study with over 22,000 patients from 211 uh, hospitals in 28 European countries. 
and it investigated the potential role of residual paralysis on patient safety, particularly postoperative pulmonary complications. So respiratory failure, pulmonary infection or infiltrates, atelectasis, aspiration pneumonia, bronchospasm, and pulmonary edema. The key message was that neither the use of quantitative neuromuscular monitoring and confirmation of that train of four ratio greater than 0.9 prior to extubation, nor the administration of sugamidex or nearstigmine for reversal were associated with any difference in pulmonary outcome. So we see that the 95% confidence of intervals of the odds ratios span one, and the p-values are all greater than 0.05. However, eight months later, a post-hoc analysis of the popular data was published by the same group of researchers using the same data set and published in the uh, BJA. And it showed that the incidence of postoperative pulmonary complications was reduced if extubation occurred when the train of four ratio was increased from 0.9 to 0.95. So based on this analysis, they recommended that a train of four ratio of 0.95 actually be documented before extubation. So what they did is they took the data from the cohort of patients with the quantitative neuromuscular monitoring. That was about 3,500 patients. They binned them according to several train of four ratio cutoffs. And then they, they adjusted risk of postoperative pulmonary complications and it's 95% confidence intervals, these thin blue lines, were calculated for each bin and plotted against the respective train of four ratio uh, cutoff. So we see that the adjusted risk of postoperative pulmonary complications at the cutoff ratio of greater than 0.9, which is currently recommended recovery level, um, does not significantly differ, differ from the cohort's average risk. And the p-value is not significant. However, lower risks were achieved, significantly lower risks were achieved as soon as we crossed this 0.92 threshold, which led to their recommendation of actually achieving a train of four ratio of greater than or equal to 0.95 prior to expedition. So in, reanalysis, in the reanalysis, the key message is that the greater the recovery of neuromus from neuromuscular blockade, the lower the risk of neuromuscular blockade-related complications. Confirming, rather than maybe contesting, as in the original study, the concept that quantitative monitoring and pharmacologic antagonism lower the risk of complications re related to residual paralysis. So this apparent dichotomy between these two analysis of the same data illustrates several questions. Should the anesthesiologist choose the interpretation of the original popular database and forgo any quantitative monitoring or the use of sugamidex because they don't reduce postoperative pulmonary complications? Or should the clinician fastidiously monitor the level of neuromuscular blockade and perform tracheal extubation only when the train of four ratio is greater than 0.95? Or better yet, as many have suggested, unity. So the second study that the guidelines discuss is a before-after quality improvement study completed in a single institution. Prior to the study, approximately 1% of patients in their center had a documented train of four ratio of greater than 0.9. And following the study implementation, um, they had a um, which included putting quantitative monitors in all the rooms, um, education, and electronic recording of that train of four ratio, more than 90% of patients had a train of four ratio greater than 0.9. So if we compare uh, before and after incidents with the pre-implementation data in that first column there and the post-implementation data in the second column, 
we can see that they did observe a decrease uh, post in postoperative pulmonary complications from about 1.2% to 0.7%, so about a 40% reduction. And then they also say they saw a decrease in hospital length of stay from three to two days. And then they also report a very minimally uh, but statistically significant uh, decrease in PACU length of stay post-implementation. Um, so, you know, this decrease in time in PACU could be due to improvements in discharge efficiency over that study time period, but uh, they did also look at the difference in discharge times for people who received LMAs or did not receive neuromuscular blockades, and they didn't see that, see that uh, difference between those time points. And it could also be explained by the increased use of Sugamidex that they saw over this time period. Although we see that when they broke the patients into subcategories based on which reversal agent they uh, used, um, again, that there was no significant difference in their time to discharge from PACU. So none of these changes are huge, but again, some are statistically significant and all the changes occur in a positive direction post-implementation. So in addition to the two studies that looked at that composite outcome of pulmonary complications, the guidelines also looked at um, some additional smaller studies. So they looked at three uh, randomized control trials with about 420 patients that looked at the incidence of hypoxia. Two of the three studies showed a higher incidence of hypoxia um, while well, the in the um, qualitatively monitored group, while the third study had no events. And then they looked at cohort a study that looked at the incidence of pneumonia. This study had 160 patients and had two cases of pneumonia, both in patients assessed qualitatively and none in those uh, monitored quantitatively. And then we saw two RCTs in one prospective cohort study that looked at the incidence of reintubation. However, with just 400 patients uh, in these studies combined, there were actually no reintubation events. So we get an appreciation of how this is a little bit difficult um, to study just in, because a lot of these outcomes uh, occur fairly infrequently. So this is a summary table from the guidelines. And as you may have concluded for yourself, while we have evidence that quantitative neuromuscular monitoring results in less measurable residual neuromuscular blockade, the strength of evidence regarding a decrease in observed postoperative pulmonary complications is uh, low to very low and with just limited studies and some conflicting results and conclusions, which is why that if we look at the recommendations, we see that quantitative or qualitative monitoring is recommended to avoid residual neuromuscular blockade, not to avoid postoperative pulmonary complications. And that's because right now this current body of evidence uh, kind of struggles to show a definitive reduction in postoperative pulmonary complications when moving from qualitative to quantitative neuromuscular monitoring. However, it is important to remember that to date, there's no reports of the use of quantitative monitoring being associated with an increase in the incidence of residual blockade or pulmonary complications. And monitoring really poses no harm to the patient and may decrease some unpleasant symptoms of muscle weakness, even if it doesn't result in um, pulmonary complications. So is there a downside to monitoring? Well, there's the cost and, and some Sometimes people think maybe potentially longer wake-up times in the OR that could delay the OR. Although if we use Sugamidex, how the ASA recommends, uh, I'm not sure that we would necessarily uh, see that delay. So let's look at the third recommendation. When using quantitative monitoring, a um, 
we recommend confirming a train of four ratio greater than or equal to 0.9 before extubation. So a train of four ratio of uh, less than 0.9 became that diagnostic cutoff of residual neuromuscular blockade. However, we know that uh, train of four ratio less than 0.7 was first used. And as we saw in the reanalysis of the popular data, there's maybe some evidence that a statistically significant difference in postoperative pulmonary complications isn't realized into until confirming a train of four ratio greater than 0.95. So controversy definitely persists in this aspect of neuromuscular blockade management. And the train of four ratio threshold has been suggested to be changed to one mm -hmm. by multiple authors. But what all of this really led me to ask was, what is it, what even is the accuracy and reproducibility of the different type of neuromuscular monitoring devices? And are they interchangeable? As many studies, especially the meta-analysis, combine data from centers using multiple different models and modes of measurement of this train of four ratio. So there's three main methods or techniques of quantitative twitch monitoring that we can use. Mechanomyography or MMG, acceleromyography or AMG, and then electromyography or EMG. So mechanical myography measures isometric force with a force transducer. It's the gold standard, it's precise, it's accurate, and sensitive with reproducible results. But it's not commercially available because they're very cumbersome uh, to set up, and as probably fairly apparent from this image, really not feasible in the clinical setting outside of research. The AMG or acceleromyography is a measurement of the acceleration of stimulated um, muscle with a piezoelectric sensor. It has really been the de facto standard of clinical care. And classically, these devices measured acceleration in two dimensions. So that would have been your Trinifor watch, Infinity Trident, and MT pod. And then more recently in three dimensions. So that's your stim pod and Trinifor scan. The problem with AMG, and perhaps partially why there has been a little bit of hesitancy to adopt quantitative monitoring, is that First, the thumb must be unrestricted, making it unusable in many situations, such as whenever the arms are tucked. And two, there are repeated studies that show AMG overestimates train of four ratio and often reports train of four ratios greater than one, which is somewhat poorly understood and brings into question a little bit the validity of data from these devices. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that later. EMG or electromyography, is a measurement of the muscle action potential following nerve stim. So the amplitude of the signal is proportional to the number of activated muscle fibers, which is proportional to the force of contraction. Because we're measuring an electromyogram of the stimulated muscle, free muscle movement is not required. That means that we can use it in all surgical positions, even when the arms are tucked. The problem has been that EMG signal is influenced by other electronical devices in the operating room. And there were some engineering issues with noise management. So differentiation of the signal from the electrical noise that's just so ubiquitous in the OR. And due to these uh, reasons, AMG has been the most commercially available and most widely used method of quantitative twitch monitoring until very recently. And I would say we are definitely seeing now a transition back to EMG as our ability to differentiate signal from noise improves uh, in these EMG devices. So back to our questions, how accurate and reproducible are these monitors? And can we use the same cutoff of 0.9 for residual neuromuscular blockade, regardless of what device we use? So this is the body of evidence that the guidelines looked at in regards to technical performance. 
They included 22 studies, 17 fully paired, four randomized control trials, and one prospective cohort. All these studies looked at various factors that affect the performance of neuromuscular monitors. And of note, they're not very large studies. Um, you know, uh, the median uh, number of patients was 36. So in looking at this list, I thought, you know, which one should I read? Should I focus on today if we want to further inform ourselves? <clears throat> well, we're interested in technical performance, and we know that there have been significant improvements in noise cancellation in 3D over 2D accelerometry. So I started by crossing out those studies that have, uh, occurred prior to 2000. It's a bit arbitrary, but I was just hoping that things have kind of improved since I was 10 years old. And then I crossed out all the uni and two-dimensional devices, leaving just the three-dimensional devices, which obviously were designed to improve accuracy. And these studies might have, you know, might still be a bit informative, but we see that a lot of the studies look at the train of four watch, and that was discontinued way back in 2016. So not super helpful as an institution looking at maybe adopting um, one of these monitors. And next, I removed those with any quadits uh, scores of uh, high, so essentially bad studies based on critical appraisal. That then left me with five studies. And then finally, there's two um, studies that look at kinomyography versus EMG, which is a method that hasn't really caught on and not mainstream. So I crossed those off. And that left us with three studies, all completed in the last three years. The study by Honing et al. at the bottom there compares Two different EMG devices. The study by Renew compares the AMG train of force scan to the EMG tetragraph, and the study by Battle compares AMG Stimpod and EMG Twitch View to each other, and also to the grand gold standard um, MMG. So this job study is the study I want to highlight today because not only be, it, does it compare AMG and EMG to the gold standard, but also because AMG device is the Stimpod, which is what we currently have available to us in Saskatoon with one device at St. Paul's and one at RUH. So this is the article. It was published in Anesthesia in 2020 by a group based in Seattle, Washington. It's a comparative study between the three types of monitors and it enrolled 43 patients undergoing general surgery or gynecologic cases, um, excluding any cases where the arms would be tucked. Uh, as we know, AMG requires unrestricted thumb motion. The majority of the patients received ROC and roughly equal percentages were reversed with neoglyco and Sugamidex. So this study went like this. Patient X was consented, came into the OR. They put the MMG and EMG on the right arm. And ideally they would have liked to put the AMG device on that arm too, but because MMG requires the thumb to be restrained and AMG requires it to be unrestrained, they um, placed the AMG on the left to rule out measurement differences being a result of paralytic distribution, like one might expect from the use of a blood pressure cuff on one arm, they placed a second EMG monitor on the left as well. They then compared EMG and AMG to the gold standard and compared bilateral uh, EMG data to look for differences that might be a result of paralytic distribution differences. So for most patients, this was the setup, though in a few cases, EMG couldn't be done on both arms just due to vascular access. So once all the monitors were in place, they put the patient off to sleep. They waited 10 minutes from the delivery of the paralytic when drug concentration would be changing rapidly. And then they applied their first train of force stimulus at the ulnar nerve and recorded the MMG, EMG, and AMG data and calculated the train of force ratio from each device. So they did this every five minutes with measurements compared between devices always being taken within two minutes of one another. If a redose of paralytic was required at any point, they again withheld measurements for 10 minutes. 
So here's a graphic showing the data collected from one study patient. The y-axis is the train of four ratio, and the x-axis is time. The black dots are AMG data points, dark gray are EMG data points, and the light gray are the MMG data points. And we can see that they redose paralytic sometime around that 300 minute mark. So we noticed right away that train of four ratios for AMG are greater than those at the same time point for EMG or MMG, with many measured values actually being greater than one. EMG ratios also appear greater than MMG ratios, although as that train of four ratio approaches one, the values begin to look very similar. And in total, these are the number of patients in which they compared the given modalities with the number of data pairs they collected. We can see that the number of data pairs for EMG um, are versus MMG and versus AMG are much higher. And that's just because, remember, they had those EMG devices on each arm. And once they ruled out any appreciable difference between the bilateral EMG data, they then compared um, data to each EMG device. So we're going to look at some Bland and Altman plots. Um, and just as a reminder, these are a great way to assess agreement between two quantitative methods of measurement. They plot the difference of the two paired measurements, A minus B on the y-axis, and the mean of the two measurements on the x-axis. When looking at data, we're interested in a couple of things. Number one is bias. So how big the average discrepancy is between the methods or the deviation of the mean of the differences from zero. So with sufficient data, the average of those differences should approach zero if the, um, if the variability is just due to measurement error. Two, the range of agreement within which 95% of the differences are included. We then must decide if this range of agreement is clinically acceptable or not. And this is defined as that shaded area and it's plus or minus two standard deviations from the mean of the differences. And it's analogous to a 95% confidence interval. So here's our data. Let's look at the plot on the left. It compares MMG and EMG train of four ratios. The y-axis is the difference between the measured trend of four ratio as a percentage with MMG and EMG. And then the x-axis is the average of the measured train of four ratios, again, as a percentage for both methods. Our calculated bias is 4.7, shown by that dotted line, meaning that on average, EMG measures a train of four ratio 4.7% less than MMG. The range of agreement is shown by the shaded area and is approximately plus or minus 30 from the bias. So results measured by EMG may be expected to be 25% greater or 35% lower than MMG. That didn't sound very good to me. So I went looking for a proposed clinically acceptable level of agreement, agreement in quantitative twitch monitoring literature. But despite what I would say is a pretty valid a valiant attempt and even emailing the author of this paper, I came up with nothing. But let's just say our gold standard reports a train of four ratio of 0.9 or 90%. Based on this data, our predicted EMG measurement would be 4.7% less or 85%, but could be anywhere from 55 to 115. So to me, the bias seems clinically acceptable and in the right direction in that it's more conservative or safe with on average a lower estimated train of four ratio than the MMG. However, the range of agreement seems really large. And based on just one measurement, uh, I'm not sure I could fully trust my reported train of four ratio. So now let's look at the plot on the right. That compares MMG and AMG train of four ratios. Our calculated bias is 9.8, shown by the dotted line. But note here that the authors have plotted AMG minus MMG on the y-axis, subtracting the gold standard measurement from the index test compared to uh, the gold standard minus the index test on the plot on the left. So this means that on average, AMG measures a train of four ratio 9.8% higher than MMG. The range of agreement is shown by that shaded area and is approximately plus or minus 40% from the bias. 
So results measured with MMG may be 51% greater or 32% lower than MMG. Again, for an MMG train of four ratio of 90%, our predicted AMG measure would be 9.8% more or 100%, but could be anywhere from 60 to 140. So for AMG, the bias is greater and also in a less conservative direction in terms of um, that the, on average, the reported value will be 10% greater than MMG and therefore puts patients at risk of being extubated despite inadequate recovery from neuromuscular blockade. The range of agreement is also greater than AMG. Finally, and this was not commented on by the authors, but to me, just eyeballing a regression line here, there appears to be some element of proportional bias in the AMG measurements, with AMG more likely to report higher train of four ratios at higher average values. And to me, this says that AMG is a little less sensitive methodology to rule out residual paralysis, as we know that a measured AMG train of four ratio of 90 is likely more like 80 with MMG and could be as low as 40. And recall that that train of four ratio of 40 is actually the point at which train of four fade becomes detectable by the physician eye with a quality qualitative monitor. Okay, so here's the plan and all my pots comparing AMG and EMG data on the left and EMG from the left and right arms on the right. I'm not going to spend as much time on these because uh, I don't think this is informatory, but um, based on this data, these authors did decide to include data points in the EMG versus MMG and EMG versus MMG plots that were not obtained from the same arm because they thought the difference between the right and left arm were um, that the values worked fairly close together. So let's just summarize the results. Here's a table which shows the bias and range of agreement determined by the Bland and Altman plots. We can see that there was little um, bias between the EMG readings between the uh, arms, ruling out the blood pressure cuff as that potential confounder. And then we see that EMG has a smaller bias and in a more conservative direction than EMG, but that in all cases, the range of agreement is clinically quite large. As sometimes they're still more easy to take in than Bland and Altman plots, I'm also going to put up here scatter plots of the MMG versus AMG, EMG versus MMG, and EMG uh, right versus left. Now, these plots can be a little bit misleading relative to Bland and Altman plots as our brains tend to fit a regression line and a correlation, but nonetheless, we can see the range of AMG and EMG values depicted um, by the red arrows that were recorded at an MMG train of four ratio of 100%, which again is our gold standard monitor. One other thing um, that becomes very evident when looking at this data in this format is that AMG frequently produces that train of four ratio value greater than one. So let's talk about that. So for each method, here are the proportion of train of four ratios greater than one. 23% uh, or almost a quarter of uh, AMG uh, data will be greater than one. And this has been shown again and again throughout the literature. So because we know that following a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker, um, repetitive stimulation causes muscle fatigue and that leads to this characteristic fade or decrease in twitch amplitude with repeat stimuli. And that without neuromuscular blockade or after complete recovery, we should see four twitches of equal amplitude. This result is perplexing. And um, while it has been proposed that a train of four ratio greater than one with AMG may be due to the thumb not returning to its starting position after each train of four stimulus, it is pretty poorly understood. Regardless, many studies report that 20 to 30% of patients will have an AMG baseline train of four ratio greater than one. So that's measured before any neuromuscular blocker is given. And this has led most people to wonder whether we should just normalize the train of four ratio. 
So this would be done by dividing all train of four ratios by the baseline train of four ratio. So for example, a patient has a baseline train of four ratio of 1.3, we put them to sleep and paralyze them. And if we follow the guideline and extubate at a train of four ratio of 0.9, we might wonder if the patient has truly reached that threshold, given that the initial train of four ratio was 1.3 rather than one. So perhaps we should wait for a measured train of four ratio of 1.2 prior to extubation, which would be 90% of their initial train of four ratio. So despite knowing this is a common problem, this study uh, explicitly chose not to normalize. And why? Because it's clinically difficult and therefore rarely done in practice. So due to the many logistical issues of obtaining baseline train of four ratios that have to be measured after the patient is unaware, but before we give the paralytic, some people have recommended that we simply just increase our extubation threshold for AMG from 0.9 to 1. What do the ASA guidelines say about it? They do say to exercise caution, but they don't recommend normalization or a higher train of four ratio if using AMG. Additionally, we should be aware that some older monitors, AMG devices like the train of four watch, will just cap the train of four ratio at one and simply not report values higher than this. So again, that was just one study um, and a fairly small study. What about those other two studies we thought we might read? Uh, Renew in 2021 compared the EMG tetragraph to the AMG train of four scan. And while they had a bit smaller bias, their range of agreement was actually larger um, than the study we just looked at. Um, although despite this, they did give the somewhat confusing conclusion that tetragraph and train of four scan provided interchangeable quantitative measures um, beyond that train of four ratio. And Honing compared the two EMG devices and found a considerable bias, but small 95% confidence control. And also, as with many uh, things in our job, uh, found that the difference in variability in data was increased in obese individuals. So in my opinion, the availability uh, of data in this area is still pretty limited. I think it might be helpful for more discussion in future guidelines uh, around uh, what device modality um, is specifically being looked at, the question of normalization with especially AMG data, and what a clinically acceptable level of agreement or range of agreement between measurement devices would be. But we'll move on. So the guidelines also spend a lot of time considering where we should conduct measurements. They recommend the adductor pollicis and specifically recommend against any eye muscles. So this is a table from Brash, which I'm sure you're familiar with, shows the recovery in twitch height over time of different muscles. We see the adductor pollicis recovers slowest, making it the most conservative point of measurement while when considering extubation, whereas the corrugator supracilli uh, in that green line there, um, which is what we most often use, recovers much faster, as does the bicularis oculi. So table four here is from the ASA guidelines and summarizes data from multiple RCTs comparing the adductor pollicis train of four ratio to uh, that measured at many other index muscles. And consequently, they found longer times to train of four ratio greater than 0.9 at the adductor pollicis relative to the other muscles. And um, therefore recommend always measuring at the adductor pollicis. So they also um, gave this recommendation a um, moderate level evidence uh, in terms of its strength. Though to me here, the evidence is much stronger than their prior recommendation to reverse to that train of four ratio of 0.9. So let's move on to the next question. 
Is the need for quantitative neuromuscular monitoring decreasing with the increasing availability of sugaminics? This is something I heard a lot and a question I was interested in, especially when I saw that the ASA guidelines recommended not only quantitative monitoring for every patient receiving uh, paralytic, but also recommended a much more liberal use of sugaminix than I've seen used here. So the ASA recommends sugaminix at deep, moderate, and shallow depths of neuromuscular blockade with a shallow block defined as a train of four count with fade or a train of four ratio of less than 0.4. Now on the left is a table from Brash with proposed neostigmine dosing that you're probably very familiar with. So as for these recommendations, we would never give neostigmine at the deeper levels of blockade, just sugaminix, only considering it once train of four ratio was greater than 0.4. This is because the degree of spontaneous recovery at the time of antagonism is known to be a major determinant of successful and timely antagonism with neostigmine. So according to the data analyzed in the guidelines, waiting until a train of four ratio of 0.4 led to a train of four ratio greater than or equal to 0.9 within 10 minutes of neostigmine in all patients. While the evidence synthesis did not address the dosages of the antagonistic drugs, we do know that the FDA approved dosages for minimal blockade would be 20 to 30 mics per kilo. I might also just point out, uh, in case not everyone realizes this, that if neostigmine is given at a train of four count less than two, it can actually potentiate the different duration of the block. So you should always confirm spontaneous recovery to at least a train of four count of two prior to reversal with neostigmine. So the guidelines also examined the risks of side and side effects of sugaminix versus neostigmine. They did find sugaminix to have a higher incidence of anaphylaxis at 1.40 to 10,000 uh, versus 0.30 to 10,000 for neostigmine. There is no difference, however, in cardiac complications. And in regards to pulmonary complications, six RCTs as well as seven non-randomized uh, studies reported no difference in composite pulmonary complications, and six RCTs found no difference in hypoxia. On the other hand, uh, five RCTs and four cohort studies reported fewer episodes of pneumonia with sugamidex, and four of five RCTs reported lower rates of reintubation with sugamidex. The incidence of re-paralysis uh, was also looked at in 13 trials that tracked this. Um, 10 did not have any re-paralysis, and the other three trials showed a risk difference of negative 2.9% for sugamidex versus neostigmine. So redistribution of neuromuscular blocker molecules from peripheral compartments has been postulated to explain recurrent paralysis after sugamidex, but this has generally occurred in the setting of uh, antagonizing deep neuromuscular blockade with lower doses of sugamidex um, as sort of a cost-saving strategy. They did uh, note that post-op nodular vomiting appeared lower with sugamidex, and overall sugamidex basically has a fairly nice risk profile uh, and with the exception of that slightly increased risk of anaphylaxis and remembering that we should ensure all women using hormonal contraceptives utilize a backup contraception for seven days, it seems to have a uh, few downsides. Okay, so we've made it through all six recommendations. I'm a bit of a visual person, so I tried to just sum them all up into a very simple clinical pathway. So the ASA proposes that 15 minutes prior to planned extubation in any patient who's received a neuromuscular blocking agent, we should quantitatively measure the train of four ratio at the adductor pollicis longus. And if that train of four ratio is greater than or equal to 0.9, then there's no need for reversal. We can stop our anesthetic and extubate the conscious patient with no reversal. If the train of four ratio, however, is less than or equal to 0.9, we either need to wait for spontaneous recovery or give reversal. 
Specifically, if the train of four ratio is less than 0.4, we should use Sugamidex. But if the train of four ratio is greater than 0.4, we can use Neostigmi. After we give reversal, we should reevaluate that train of four ratio. And if still less than 0.9, we should wait or give a second dose of reversal. And once we achieve that train of four ratio of, point, of greater than or equal to 0.9, we can then stop our anesthetic and extubate the conscious patient. So say despite not having uh, data showing a definitive decrease in clinical postoperative pulmonary complications and knowing that our monitors aren't technically perfect, we recognize that quantitative monitoring has some potential benefit and that because the simple act of measuring poses no direct harm to the patient, we decide we wanna shift from qualitative to quantitative monitoring in Saskatoon. What are some of the barriers we would have to overcome? I'm gonna take you back to this study, the one that examined uh, pulmonary complications pre and post implementation of quantitative neuromuscular monitoring in their institution. So pre-implementation prior to 2019, the facility had less than 10% of cases with a documented train of four ratio greater than 0.9. Then we see the implementation ramp up as they began providing education and started to introduce quantitative monitoring in a few of the ORs. By October of 2019, they have quantitative monitors in all rooms. And we see this huge jump from 21 to 68% of cases with a reported train of four ratio of 0.9 in just a three month, uh, in just a three span of three months. So the team then put out instructional videos, which further increased compliance up to 83%. And then they implemented a smart anesthesia manager with electronic reporting of these values, and compliance went up to a 93%. So essentially in two years, they took their institution from 10% to 93% of patients have an, having a documented train of four ratio of greater than or equal to 0.9. So to me, this study illustrates a few things. One, availability is a huge um, barrier and it takes an institutional commitment and investment to initiate this change. Two, ongoing education specific to the monitors of choice is gonna help with adoption and proper use. And third, well, Electronic reporting was relatively late in the implementation, so it led to a smaller increase. I suspect it would be one of the most helpful things in sustaining this change in the longer term. And lastly, you know, the, this has been done before. We're definitely not the only center that has low rates of quantitative monitoring right now, but it seems to me that uh, this is becoming a standard of care. And the good thing is that we have many models to learn from in regards to implementation, even if we chose to implement it in solar steps. So example, just in the robotics rooms where knowing paralysis depth is very important, or in thoracic rooms where our pretest probability of respiratory complications is very high. So what might we expect to see if we implemented quantitative neuromuscular monitoring? Associated findings in this study were a fairly significant change in the use of Sugamidex and neosigmine. So initially, about 5% of patients were reversed with Sugamidex, which increased to over 70%. And they, of course, had a reciprocal decline in the use of neostigmine from over 90% of cases to just 20% of cases. And then they also did see a little slight bump in the number of patients uh, that received no reversal at all. So what about money? How much do these monitors and sensors cost? So the two devices we have here in Saskatoon are both StimPod and MS450X models. So Maybe we go to a different monitor, but because this is what we have here, I thought I'd uh, put up some representative numbers um, just to be, uh, what might be a little interesting. So the actual monitor costs about $2,300 each. The AMG electrode is inexpensive and reusable. And for the simulation, you just use ECG electrodes. 
But if we want to do EMG, uh, which we need in those cases where the arms are tucked, well, the Stimpod NMS450X actually is a dual system with both AMG and EMG capabilities, um, which we just have never had the EMG electrodes or cables here. So the EMG electrodes are one-time use and cost about $30 a piece. And the nice thing is that uh, because you can use the same monitor for both AMG and EMG, you can take advantage of the cost savings of AMG for many cases and then use EMG only in robotics cases or other cases where the arms would be tucked. An EMG cable, cable that's compatible with our Philips monitors so that you can have your quantitative results displayed up there on the anesthetic screen on that right side is about $580. And what about Sugamidex? So if we were to adopt quantitative monitoring, we might expect that we follow a similar trend to the last implementation article I reviewed, and we might see a significant uptick in our Sugamidex use. So here's the cost of some of our medications in Saskatoon. Our two mil vial of Sugamidex is about $95, while 10 mils of neostigmine is $4.50. So at 20 times the cost per vial, and assuming we maybe reverse three patients per vial of neostigmine, we could reverse 60 patients with Sugamidex for the cost of one vial, or we could reverse 60 patients with neostigmine for the cost of one vial of Sugamidex. But is Sugamidex gonna stay this price? So the last patent pertaining to Sugamidex in Canada actually expired in November of 2020. And we have yet to see an approved generic, but there are currently seven generics under review in Canada right now. The last patent in the US will expire in 2026. So inevitably, as generics are approved, price competition is gonna drive this price down. And I think Sugamidex will definitely become the most common reversal agent. So just to summarize things, today we reviewed the ASA recommendations regarding quantitative neuromuscular monitoring and antagonism. We discussed the two most common modes of quantitative neuromuscular monitoring, AMG and EMG. Everyone knows we have a couple of Stimpod devices in Saskatoon that have AMG and EMG capability. We currently don't stock EMG electrode arrays, but I have actually convinced uh, St. Paul's to order me a box of 10 arrays and the EMG cables. So they will be arriving very soon. Um, and if you want to experiment with EMG in the robotics room, uh, definitely I encourage you to do so. And finally, we talked about some of the barriers to implementing change like this and looked at what changes we might expect um, to see if we did move to quantitative monitoring. You've been listening to Airway Breathing Conversation, a podcast hosted and presented by the anesthesiology residents at the University of Saskatchewan. Please note that while this podcast is run by healthcare professionals, it is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. We are very thankful to our guests for taking the time to share their wisdom with us this episode, and a very special thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Don't forget to follow us and our associated USASC Anesthesia accounts on social media. You can find all our social media links on our Linktree page at linktr.ee slash abc underscore podcast. You can also find the department's social media links on their Linktree page at linktr.ee slash usask underscore anesthesia. We'll see you next episode, but until then, stay calm, take a breath, and always remember your ABCs.